You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. Now, if you look in your Bible, the book of Ezekiel, we're going to continue our study through this long, rich, challenging, prophetic book. We've made it to Exodus chapter 19. We are, uh, we are going to try tonight to get from chapter 19 all the way to chapter 22. So we'll see how that goes. may be a bit ambitious, but I think we'll get there. I think we'll get there. We're going to look at some kind of broad summary statements concerning these chapters. And the title of what I want to talk to you about tonight specifically, or what I want to focus in on tonight specifically, is Standing in the Gap. Ezekiel is going to encourage us to think about being the kind of people that stand in the gap on behalf of others. Uh, But before we get into chapter 19 and begin to study, I want to just remind you of the outline of this book to uh, to kind of help us to remember where we are as this book unfolds. First three chapters deal with the prophet's call, where God calls Ezekiel to speak to the Israelites who were in exile because of their rebellion against the Lord. God had sent the Babylonian Empire to overthrow the Jews and to take thousands back to Babylon in captivity. There were still some Jews in Jerusalem, but thousands were in Babylon, and Ezekiel was one of those taken to Babylon. And then Ezekiel was called to preach to the Jews in Babylon and also to preach about the Jews who were still in Jerusalem and Judah. So that's kind of the, the context. And Ezekiel was called in chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 4 through 24 describe God's message of judgment for Jerusalem and Judah. That's where we find ourselves tonight. And so tonight we're going to look at chapters 19 through 22. Uh, The next week we'll look at chapters 23 and 24, and that'll end section 2. And we'll transition us to section 3, which is a message for foreign nations. So not only does God speak to the Jews, God speaks to other nations as well. We'll look at that. And then there's a message after the fall of Jerusalem. A lot of part 2 in this outline is God telling Jerusalem, because of your rebellion, uh, an overthrow is coming. Hardship is coming uh, destruction is coming, and in chapters 30 through 39, there is a message after this fall of Jerusalem. And, and then in part 5, there is a vision of restoration, some fascinating things there. God judged his people. He was not through with his people because he had a plan for his people uh, that ultimately deals with a Messiah named Jesus who came for all of us. So a vision of restoration. Here's the summary statement as to what this book is about. From Exile in Babylon, Dr. Easley writes, Ezekiel's stunning visions and startling symbolic acts were prophecies for the Israelites to teach God's sovereign plan over them in the history of his kingdom so that they shall know that I am the Lord. So God's reminding them he is the king. He's the king of kings. There's a lot of kings and kingdoms mentioned in this book. You've got Babylon. You've got 
uh, Israel. You've got Egypt and the Ammonites and, and different groups mentioned. But, but the Lord is saying, I am king over all of those kings. And I want you to know that I'm at work. And I want you to know that I am the Lord. I am the one you should worship and obey. So that's kind of what this book is all about. And again, in this section of Ezekiel, we're looking at God's message specifically to his people, the, the Jews or the uh, Israelites. And in the section we're going to look at tonight, chapters 19 through 22, we see uh, his message unfold under five different headings. So again, we're going to go kind of quick, but I want to show you these five different headings. We'll spend most of our time on number five. So the first heading is this, a lament over leadership. A lament over leadership. Uh, Chapter 19 is a lamentation. There's a book in the Bible called Lamentations, and a lament is simply a a poetic way to grieve. It's a way to to express your sorrow over something. And in chapter 19, the Lord is expressing His sorrow over the lack of leadership or the lack of godly leadership among His people. So it's a lament over leadership. Look what it says there. Uh, in verse 14, the last, chapter, uh, the last verse of this chapter, uh, the last sentence in that verse says, this is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. So very clear, chapter 19 is God lamenting over the lack of godly leadership among his people. Now back up to verse 1 where the Lord says, And you take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel, that's the leaders, the the, the government leaders of Israel, the political leaders of Israel, take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel and say, What was your mother? A lioness among lions. She crouched in the midst of young lions. She reared her cubs. And so God uses a lioness to picture the nation of Israel and mentions this lioness, this nation, produced some cubs. And these cubs represent uh, some of the kings, some of the political leaders. Look what it says there in verse 3. She brought up one of her cubs. He became a young lion. He learned to catch prey. He devoured men. The nations heard about him. He was caught in their pit, and they brought him with hooks to the land of Egypt. So here you see this, this, this lion cub produced by the lioness of Israel, a leader in Israel, and things don't go well. It seems like he comes to power quickly, and he's not an upright person. It says he's devouring men. And other nations get involved, and the Bible says he's taken with hooks to the land of Egypt. This is probably talking about Jehoaz, who was taken captive by Pharaoh Necho, the, the king of Egypt. And you read about this in 2 Kings 23, 31 through 35. And so the Lord is using uh, Jehoaz as an example of a leader that has not led well and who was judged. And then look in... Uh, verse 5, when she saw that she waited in vain, that her hope was lost, she took another of her cubs, another king, another of her cubs, and made him a young lion. He prowled among the lions, he became a young lion, he learned to catch prey, he devoured men, he seized their widows, he laid waste their cities. So this is not a godly ruler. Everybody see that? He seized their widows, laid waste their cities. The land was appalled and all who were in it at the sound of his roaring. Then the nation set against him from provinces on every side. They spread their net over him. He was taken in their pit with hooks. They put him in a cage, brought him to the king of who? 
Babylon, they brought him into custody that his voice should no more be heard on the mountains of Israel. So again, we have an ungodly king who God judged through another nation, and he was specifically taken to Babylon in captivity. This is probably talking about the king uh, Jehoiakim. Uh, he ranges a short time. He was an evil king. He was taken into captivity. You can read about him in 2 Kings 24, verse 12. So again, there, there were a lot of kings among the Jews, but, but the Lord uses two specifically just to, just to kind of illustrate and to represent the, the overall ungodliness of the political leaders of the Jews. And then fast forward down to verse 10. He uses another image here. Your mother was like a vine in a vineyard. So he's speaking here of Israel being a vine, a a common theme throughout the Old Testament. A vine is is meant to produce good fruit. He says, your mother was like a vine in a vineyard planted by the water, fruitful and full of branches by reason of abundant water. Its strong stems became ruler scepters. So this vine produced kings, produced rulers. It towered aloft among the thick bows. God blessed different kings in Israel. It was seen in its height with the mass of its branches. But the vine was plucked up in fury, cast down to the ground. The east wind dried up its fruit. They were stripped off and withered. As for its strong stem, fire consumed it. Now it, the vine, is planted in the wilderness, which is Babylon, captivity. It is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land. And fire has gone out from the stem of its shoots, has consumed its fruit. So that there remains in it no strong stem, no scepter for ruling. So ungodly king after ungodly king after ungodly king ruled Israel. So Lord, the Lord sent the Babylonians to overthrow them and take the nation into exile. And that is pictured in the vine who uh, is plucked up in fury. So again, chapter 19 is a poetic lamentation, a poetic way to express sorrow. If you look there in your notes, the image of the lions and the vine conveyed the failures of those God expected to lead his people. It's picturing the failures of the kings of Israel. So it's a lament over leadership. And, and you and I both know that uh, when leadership is not sound and godly, it doesn't go well for the people who are being Led And so the image of the lions of the vine conveyed the failures of those God expected to lead his people. Did I see a hand raised over here, Barry? Yeah, I'm using, I'm using Israel in a comprehensive sense. Yeah, comprehensive sense. Uh, specifically, the judgment came against the southern kingdom of Judah. Yeah, but part of the overall nation of Israel. Yeah, I'm not talking about the northern kingdom. I'm talking about the entire, I'm talking about the Jews, God's people. A lament over leadership. Now, secondly, God's message to his people, the second heading is there's a heinous history. I spent some time this week alliterating my points, so I was, I was kind of proud of that one. A heinous history. Are you impressed by that, the two H's? I even used the thesaurus for that. So, a heinous history. Now, look in chapter 20. This is, again, a long chapter but it's really a history of the nation of Israel. And it's a history of their, um, of their ungodliness. If you look there in your notes, it's the story of God's people, which was a story of consistent rebellion. Consistent rebellion. There were bright spots. There were godly leaders and godly people and godly prophets. 
But the overall trajectory of, uh, of the Jews was rebellion against the Lord. And there are four different areas or four different parts of their history in which rebellion was a part of their uh, interaction with the Lord. First of all, rebellion in Egypt. Look in verse 4. We're going to go very quickly through chapter 20. But look in verse 4. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Let them know the abomination of their fathers and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, and making myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt, into a land that I searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of, of all lands. Look in verse 7. This is interesting. A lot of people don't realize this about Israel in Egypt, or the Jews in Egypt. And I said to them, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So often we think of Israel's rebellion or the Jews' rebellion against the Lord. We think about them in the wilderness, right, after the Exodus. But these verses teach us that before God even rescued them from Egyptian bondage and slavery, they were worshiping Egyptian gods. They were worshiping false gods and idols. So what does that tell you about the Exodus? God's grace, right? They didn't deserve to be rescued. They were worshiping pagan gods. But God rescued them anyway because he had a plan for the descendants of Abraham. But in Egypt, they rebelled against God. Also in the wilderness, look at what it says in verse 13. But the house of Israel rebelled against me where? In the wilderness. So he rescued them from Egyptian bondage and slavery, brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness, and in the wilderness they rebelled against him. They did not go and take the land like God told them to, so he allowed them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years till the unbelieving generation died off. Then he sent a new generation into the promised land. But guess what? Even in the promised land, they rebelled against God. Look what it says in verse 27. Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, In this also your fathers blaspheme me by dealing treacherously with me. For when I brought them into the land that I swore to give them, that's the promised land, then whenever they saw any high hill or any leafy tree, there they offered their sacrifices and there they presented the provocation of their offering. There they sent up their pleasing aromas and there they poured out their drink offerings. I said to them, what is the high place to which you go? So its name is called Bama to uh, this uh, day. Bama means high place. Here's the deal. God brought them into the promised land. He showed his power and grace in giving them a promised land, in, in helping them to defeat the nations that lived in the promised land. But when they arrived in the promised land, they began to go to the high places, the hills, and set up shrines and altars to false gods. So they were rebellious in Egypt. They were rebellious when God brought them out of Egypt. They were rebellious when God took them into the promised land, but that's not it. They were even rebellious after God's judgment by Babylon when they were taken into captivity. Look in verse 30. Therefore say, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Will you defile yourselves after the manner of your fathers and go whoring after their detestable things? Will you be, uh, will you be pagan worshipers like your descendants were? That's what he's saying there. When you present your gifts and 
um, offer up your, uh, your, like your forefathers were. When you present your gifts and offer up your children in fire, you defile yourselves with all your idols to this day. So in, even though you've been judged by God, you've been devastated as a nation, thousands have been taken into a foreign land against their will, even in the midst of my judgment, you're still worshiping false gods. He said, you defile yourselves with all your idols to this day. And so we see this picture of consistent rebellion by the Jews. And here's the amazing thing about the remainder of chapter 20. God basically says, even though you've showed rebellion after rebellion after rebellion after rebellion, I'm not done with you. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to be gracious and I'm going to preserve you. Because again, God had a plan to use the descendants of Abraham, the Jews, to send us a Messiah who would die for the sins of the world. So listen to me. This is so very important to understand God's grace. The fact that God preserved the Jews and blessed the Jews and rescued the Jews in the midst of all of their rebellion is a picture of his love for you. He preserved them so he could send a Messiah for you. Isn't that awesome? And for me. And so God is showing his grace even in the face of their heinous history. But there's a third heading here as God speaks to his people There is a woeful weapon. A woeful weapon. Look in at chapter 21. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem and preach against the sanctuary. So now, again, he's in exile in Babylon. Ezekiel the priest, the prophet, preaching to the Jews there. But there are still Jews in Jerusalem uh, and instead of turning to God, they turned to Pharaoh. They, they, they turned o- away from God. And so Ezekiel's preaching to the, the situation of the Jews who were still in Jerusalem, still in Judah. Prophesy against the land of Israel and say to the land of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you. Hey, listen to me. Whenever God says, I am against you, that's not a good thing. You never want to find yourself in opposition to the God of the universe. Can I get an amen on that? He says, I am against you. Now watch this. And will draw my sword from its sheath and will cut off from you both righteous and wicked. Because I will cut off from you both both righteous and wicked. Therefore my sword shall be drawn from its sheath against all flesh from south to north, and all flesh shall know that I am the Lord. I've drawn my sword from its sheath. It shall not be sheathed again. So here's what he's saying. Judgment is coming. You've gone too far, Jews in Jerusalem, leaders, princes, prophets, people. You've rebelled against me. You've crossed the line. Judgment is coming. So if you look there in your notes, a holy God with a drawn sword is a terrifying picture. And that's what it's meant to convey. How terrible and terrifying the judgment of God is. And and the rest of the chapter is about this judgment that is coming. How his sword will cut deeply. How destruction will come. How judgment will fall on his people. So this drawn sword, which God says, is not going to be sheathed again. In other words, I'm not going to change my mind. Judgment's coming is a a picture that is terrifying. And as I was studying this, it reminded me of a quote 
from Thomas Jefferson. And there's some debate over Thomas Jefferson's religious beliefs. I don't believe by any means he was an evangelical Christian, the way we would define evangelical Christian. But I do believe that he wasn't an atheist. I do believe that he had a, an underlying fear of God because he made this statement. Thomas Jefferson said, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. That his justice cannot sleep forever. It's a powerful quote, isn't it? And, and if you read chapter 21, it, the, the, the effect should be on the hearer as Ezekiel's preaching, I tremble for my country. God is holy, God is just, God is righteous, and he's pulled out his sword. I tremble for my country. And then we think about our own current situation in 2022. And I think about the, the, the setting in which we live, our society, our culture, our nation, our country. And in a very similar way to Thomas Jefferson, I tremble for my country when I consider that God is just. The, listen, the Bible says in Galatians 5, God will not be mocked. And here in chapter 21, the sword is drawn. His justice will not sleep forever. Which leads to the fourth heading. There's a lament over leadership, a heinous history, a woeful weapon, and then number four, a succinct and sorrowful summary. <laughs> I went crazy with alliteration, I'm sorry. I, just, I got carried away. A succinct and sorrowful summary. Now look in chapter 22. He really sums up everything he said in chapters 19, 20, and 21. And he really gives us kind of a, a summary statement as to um, the problem. Chapter 22, verse 23. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to her, you are a land, this is the nation of Israel, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. So if you look there in your notes, God grieves over unfaithful prophets. It's one of the problems. There were people who were claiming to speak on behalf of God who were speaking falsehood. Speaking untruth. So unfaithful prophets. Then look in the next verse, verse 28. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. They have disregarded my Sabbath so that I have profaned among them. So God grieves over unfaithful priests. Basically what he's saying here is this. The priests are ignoring the Torah. They're ignoring Exodus or they're ignoring Leviticus. They're ignoring Deuteronomy. They're ignoring the law, the sacrificial law. They're, they're ignoring the, the command to, to, to observe the Sabbath. They're, they're ignoring the distinctions between clean and unclean. My priests are not doing their job. So God's grieving over unfaithful priests. But then God grieves over unfaithful princes. Look in the next verse. 27. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. How do you know if a leader is a good leader? Are they leading in a way that is good for those that they have authority and responsibility over? Or are they leading in a way that is detrimental to the people they are supposed to be leading? And the princes, the, 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 the political leaders of Israel, were leading in a way that was ungodly and detrimental to the people they were leading. So God grieves over unfaithful prophets, priests, princes, and then forth people. 
people. Look in verse 29. The people of the land. Just the people, the common everyday people. The people of the land have practiced extortion, committed robbery, oppressed the poor and needy, extorted from the sojourner without justice. So the Lord's saying the problem is widespread. You have ungodly prophets, ungodly priests, ungodly princes, and an ungodly people. So that's really a a, a succinct summary of the previous chapters. And it's sorrowful. The the Jews were in bad shape. They were not a God-fearing nation. Which leads to number five. This is where I want to direct your attention. What does God seek? What does God seek? What God seeks. That's number five. What God seeks. In the midst of all of this ungodliness, what is God looking for? What does God want? What does God desire? Well, look what it says in the very next verse in chapter 22. We read down to verse 29. Now look in verse 30. And I, the Lord speaking here, I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land. Now some translations say stand in the gap. New American Standard says that. King James says that. NIV says that. Stand in the breach. Stand in the gap before me for the land. That I should not destroy it, but I found none. So I'm looking for a man to stand in the breach that, is, that has uh, come about because of unfaithfulness and has made God's people vulnerable to his judgment and to oppression from foreign nations. There's a breach there. God's people are unwell and unsafe. I'm looking for someone who will stand in that breach, stand in that gap on behalf of the people. A, a godly leader, a godly person who will stand before me. Look what it says there in verse uh, 30. For the land. They're, they're standing on behalf of others. But he says, I found none. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. I've consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I've returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. God here says, I've been looking for someone, someone that will stand for these people and lead them in the right direction, but I found no one. Now, if you look there in your notes, this is very important. In this text, I'm going to show you some other texts in a moment. God is on the lookout for a surrendered individual, a godly individual, that he can use to change the spiritual trajectory of a city or even a nation. Let me read that again. God is on the lookout for a surrendered individual that he can use to change the spiritual trajectory of a city or even a nation. And there are other verses that speak of God looking for someone to stand on behalf of others. Let me show you an example of this over in Psalm 106. Turn to Psalm 106. And look in verse 
This is after Psalm 106 describes the history of the Jews, the history of Israel. And it speaks of them being delivered from Egypt, the, the great exodus. God leads them through the Red Sea as he parts the waters for them. And after they came through the Red Sea and they come to Mount Sinai, they make a golden calf. And the Bible says God it, it, it was ready to destroy them. Look in verse 23. Therefore he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, watch this, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. So God's about to pour out his judgment upon his people for their idolatry in the face of his great grace and power. And Moses stands in the gap, the breach, and says, God, don't do it. Don't do it. Please don't do it. And he prays for them and he intercedes for them. And God relents of this sure disaster and judgment. So Moses is a picture of someone who stood in the, in the gap on behalf of others. And he does it all throughout his ministry. There are other times in the wilderness where God's about to destroy them all. And Moses, please don't do it, God. Please don't, don't do it. He prayed for his people. He stood on their, or in their behalf. But let me show you another verse that speaks of this. Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 16. 2 Chronicles chapter 16. This speaks of Asa. Asa was an interesting Judean king. It says in chapter uh, 14 that Asa was ruling and a, a great army of a million men from Ethiopia came to attack them. And Asa turns to God and he trusts God and says, God help! And God gave them a great victory over that a million man army. Pretty big deal, right? You would think that'd be kind of a seminal moment in someone's mind. Hey, when I cried out to God, he helped me and gave me deliverance. He, he led well, but he didn't finish well. Because look what it says in chapter 16. Chapter 16. The uh, Syrians come uh, to attack uh, Judah. And instead of crying out to God, it says there in verse 2 of chapter 16, Asa took silver and gold from the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the king's house sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, and lived in Damascus, saying, There's a covenant between me and you as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I'm sending to you silver and gold. Go break your covenant with Basha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. I'm sorry. Israel was attacking uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, and so Asa turned to Syria to help him overthrow Israel. So instead of turning to God, he turned to where? Syria. He didn't trust God. And so look what it says in verse 7. At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Now look what he says. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. So he said, remember when you trusted God and God gave you victory? Now look what he says in verse 9, key verse. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. I love this. To give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. 
In other words, Asa, why didn't you trust me? If you trust me, I'm looking for people that will trust me. If you'll trust me, I'll help you. Don't turn to Syria. You don't need Syria. You need me. But isn't it interesting how the Lord says that his eyes are looking to He's looking for people who are, that will trust him. He's looking for people whose hearts are wholehearted. Look what he says there in verse 9. To give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Wholehearted towards him. Undivided is what that word means. They're wholehearted, uh, surrendered to the Lord, serving the Lord, seeking the Lord. And when God finds an individual like that, he will use them. So back to your notes. God is on the lookout for a surrendered individual that he can use to change the spiritual trajectory of a city or even a nation. Hey, look at me real quick. Can God use one person? Absolutely. The Bible is full of God using an individual to do great and mighty things. Abraham, Moses, David. I mean, we could go through uh, Elijah uh, against the prophets of Baal. I mean, God can use one surrendered person. And, and Second Chronicles teaches us that God is looking for that person to do great and mighty things through. So, two application points will be done. Number one. We should desire to be that individual, right? God's looking for people to stand in the gap on behalf of others that are not in a good spiritual place, that that, that are not in a healthy spiritual condition. If he's looking for someone, if his eyes are looking to and fro for someone to help whose hearts are blameless and wholehearted, we should desire to be that person, right? Say, God, you can use anybody. Use me. Now, just a reminder, he doesn't need your ability Doesn't need your brain. We're talking about God, right? God is looking for a surrendered individual that he can work in and through. So that's any of us. Any of us are candidates as his eyes look to and fro. Any of us are candidates to be used by God. We should desire to be that individual. When D.L. Moody, the great evangelist from Chicago, was in England, he listened to an evangelist named uh, Harry Varley. Uh, Henry Varley preached, and Varley said this, The world has yet to see what God can do through a man who is totally yielded to him. The world has yet to see what God can do through a man who is totally yielded to him. And when he made that statement, it pierced Moody's heart. And here's what Moody said, By the grace of God, I will be that man. And God used Moody in magnificent ways. He saw tens of thousands of people saved and brought into the kingdom through his evangelistic ministry. But I love how how Moody stepped up to that challenge. That, that, That the world has yet to see what God can do through one person totally yielded to him. And Moody said, I want to be that person. I want to be that man. I I want to stand in the gap. I I want to stand in the breach. I, I want to be that one that your eyes see whose heart is wholehearted and blameless toward you. So we should desire to be that individual. God, use my life. I want to be one who stands in the gap on behalf of others. And so what is a, what's a family need when it's on a downward spiritual trajectory? Someone who loves the Lord, surrendered to Jesus, they'll stand in the gap for their family. 
What's a church need when a church finds itself in a downward spiritual trajectory? It needs some folks to stand in the gap and be wholehearted and blameless toward the Lord and let God use them to change things. What does a, what does a nation need when it finds itself in a downward spiritual trajectory? It needs some folks that will stand in the gap. And say, I will be that man. Use me to change things. I'm surrendered to you. God's looking for that person or those people. We should desire to be that individual. But there's, I think there's another level of application here. We should desire to produce those kinds of individuals. In other words, if our nation is lacking spiritual champions for Christ, it's because the church hadn't been doing its job. We should be thinking about the generations coming behind us and investing and challenging in such a way that we are raising up, preparing, and then deploying spiritual champions for Jesus. Amen? That's our job. And so, yes, we want to think about the here and now. We want to be used by God in the here and now. But we want God to work through some sold-out followers of Christ when we're no longer here, right? So, so we need to think as, you know, as parents, as grandparents, uh, in a local church setting, we think about age-graded ministries. We need to think about how can we produce the kind of people God is looking for to use? How can we produce young people that are, that are folks that will stand in the gap for others, whose hearts are blameless and wholehearted toward the Lord. That needs to be part of our equation. And I don't have all the answers, but I know it needs to be a focus of the church. So we should desire to produce those kinds of individuals. Even here at First Baptist, I want you to know, I'm praying that God will raise up mighty young people from our church that, that, that are trained up here and they go out and whatever their calling is, Whatever they're called by God to do, they go and, and, and make disciples and serve Jesus faithfully. That should be our goal. So in this section, there's a lament over leadership, a heinous history, a woeful weapon, a succinct and sorrowful summary. But then there's the passage that, that, that describes... What God seeks. He's looking for people who will stand in the gap. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.